Church tonight, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. He has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you have ever wondered, what does your pastor want for you? Perhaps the answer could be succinctly said, I want you to know Christ personally and live like Christ passionately. That's what I want for you. I want you to know Christ personally and to live like Christ passionately. I think that the Apostle Peter would say the same thing to the churches in Asia Minor. The letter begins with the author identifying himself, Simon Peter. This is the same Simon Peter who declared, you are the Christ. It's the same Simon Peter who successfully, for a moment, walked on water and came towards Jesus. It's the same Simon Peter who said to Christ, I will never deny you. Yet on that night, he disowned Christ three times before the rooster crowed. It is the same Simon Peter who was reinstated when Jesus walked on the seashore with him saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It was the same Simon Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost and God used him and on that one single day, the church exploded from 120 members to 3,120 members. It's pretty good church growth, don't you think? Just for one day's work. It's the same Simon Peter who stood with another disciple, uh, stood before the Sanhedrin and said, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We are declaring Jesus 
Christ. This is the same Simon Peter who authored the first letter that bears his name. I believe that this second letter was written by the very same person who wrote the first letter. And there may be a collective duh that goes across the crowd. But there are a lot of scholars that disagree. They think that this second letter that's called Second Peter is written by some anonymous source. I don't think it is at all. I think there's internal evidence where Peter says of himself that he was an eyewitness on that mountain of transfiguration. I think there are other areas of internal evidence where he says in chapter 3, this is the second letter I have written to you. I think the first letter is a reference to 1 Peter. I think there's external evidence. There are a lot of uh, church fathers who have affirmed that this letter belongs in the canon and it belongs to 2 Peter. It belongs to the apostle. There were other uh, books or apostles in those first couple of centuries that had the name Peter, but the church fathers did not include them in the canon because they said of the canon of Scripture, this first Peter and second Peter, they both belong to the one who was the apostle. So I adamantly affirm that this text was authored by the Holy Spirit through the person of Simon Peter. Simon Peter identifies himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The word servant is doulos in Greek. It simply means a slave. First and foremost, Peter says, I am a slave to Christ. I am owned by him. I am his property. That word servant is used in the Old Testament to describe many of the best and brightest of the Old Testament. We find it describing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and David, just to name a few. He says, I'm a servant and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So in other words, I was sent by him. I was appointed by him. I was one who went out under the authority of Jesus the Christ. So this writing is not just the opinion of any one man. He is commissioned as a slave, servant, apostle of Christ. I made reference that he's an eyewitness at the transfiguration. He says in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him, from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven, and we were with him on that sacred mountain. So Peter is a servant. He's an apostle. He's an eyewitness. Who's he writing to? I think he's writing to the churches of Asia Minor. The ones that received the first letter, I think they're the same ones that received the second letter. Where do I get that? Chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Peter says, the reason I wrote both epistles, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, is to correct your stinking thinking. And the first letter, I wanted to correct your thinking about how you handle suffering. And you know that well, because we spent several weeks walking through 1 Peter. And 1 Peter was all about how we as Christians, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we are to suffer well. Well, the second letter is written not not to teach you how to suffer well again, but it's to battle something else. 
It's to correct that stinking thinking that there were some false teachers that had come into those churches of Asia Minor. And they were saying the second coming of Christ is a phony. It's been a long time. He hadn't come yet. He's not going to come. And if Christ doesn't come back, then it really doesn't matter how you live. And so Peter writes this second letter to correct that thinking of how we are to live in light of the second coming. This is a big theme of 2 Peter. We find it in chapter 3. Let me read verses 8 to 12 in your hearing. Chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You hear that jab, don't you? You've got some false teachers that are saying, because Jesus has been so slow, he's forgotten about you. He's forgotten about that so-called promise that he's coming back. So he's not coming back, so it really doesn't matter how you live. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Oh no, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In other words, it will be obvious and everybody will know it. Because Jesus will return. Verse 11, chapter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? I love it when the Bible not only asks a good question, but it answers that good question. So Peter says, in light of all this, what kind of people ought you to be? The answer, the second half of verse 11. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and you speed its coming. So this letter is written to correct that thinking that was erroneously being taught that Jesus isn't coming back. Peter says, oh, yes, he is. Just because it's been a long time doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Delay does not mean denial. Just because it's been a while doesn't mean that he's an absent-minded professor and he just forgot the promise that he gave you. No, he's not slow as some understand slowness. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it'll be obvious. He'll destroy this world. He'll establish a new heaven and earth. So in the meantime, how are you supposed to live? How do you live between the two advents? How do you live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ? Well, friend, we're still in that predicament, aren't we? Because Jesus has not yet come back. And how are we supposed to live in the same way? We live holy, godly lives. So throughout this little three-chapter letter, there's going to be a lot of talk about godliness. There's going to be a lot of talk about how you're supposed to live a pure life before the Lord. A lot of talk about how virtuous you're supposed to be. And it, and it is because a world is watching you. But there's a greater reason why you're supposed to be virtuous. You're supposed to be virtuous because Jesus is coming back. And, and, and 
And, and because we know that he's going to return, we want to do our best to live a life that pleases him. Yeah, we, we want other people to see Christ in us. Yes, we want to be a witness by word and walk. Yes, we want to we share Christ by our lips and our lifestyles. Yes, we want to be a walking evangelist. But the ultimate reason we want to live a virtuous life is because we want to please the Lord. This Lord who came and died on the cross for our sins and all of our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross. He was buried on the third day, raised from the dead. He ascended into the heavens, and one day he's coming back. That same Jesus will come. And so I, like you, we want to live a virtuous life to please the Lord because we will never forget how he saved our life. We will never forget how he took our condemnation. We will never forget he endured our hell so we could enjoy his heaven. We'll never forget that. And so by our very lives, we will express our gratitude unto him. So 2 Peter is written to teach us how we ought to live in light of the second coming. So Peter identifies himself um, as a servant, as an apostle. He's writing to, I think, that same audience of the churches in Asia Minor. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. When Peter speaks of this righteousness, that's a word that can be symbolically aligned with salvation. In the Old Testament, David speaks of it. In the Psalms, Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 42. Micah speaks of it in, in his uh, writings that, that God's righteousness is synonymous with his salvation. Because he is right, just, and innocent, he is a God who is able to save us. So the mighty acts of God's righteousness reveal the mighty acts of his salvation. So to those who through the salvation of our God and Savior Jesus Christ... Now, what's interesting is that phrase, God and Savior Jesus Christ, is not describing two different persons of the Trinity. It's, it's not, he's not describing God our Father and God our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's using that title for the God-man, Jesus Christ. I think he's describing Jesus Christ as God and Savior. Now, that's, that's huge. That's paramount because Mostly in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is described just like I said, Lord and Savior. Those are the words that are used to describe Jesus. But on a couple of occasions, Jesus is called God. This is one of those occasions where Peter has such a high Christology. Christology is a view of Christ. He has such a high Christology that Peter says that Jesus is God and Savior. The reason you know that is because in the ancient text, um, the Greek word for thee is put in front of God, and uh, that thee also can be applied to Savior. So it's the God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. The way, the way Peter writes this letter, he puts that idea as an inclusio, that's a fancy word for bookends, so this idea of a high Christology of Jesus serves as bookends of 2 Peter. We have it here where he is called God and Savior. Then if you flip a page over, chapter 3, verse 18, the very last uh, verse of the sacred text, 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He begins with Jesus. He ends with Jesus. Jesus is the bookend of the letter. And because Peter has a very high Christology, he has a very high view of Jesus. He is God, Savior, Lord, Christ, Messiah. Because Peter was an eyewitness. And so he says, um, our client has a case, and I'm here to make it for him. He has a case to be made. And so while he's not physically here, let me tell you what I have seen. Let me tell you what I have experienced. And what Peter does in his day, you and I are called to do in our day, to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. So to those who have... Who have uh, through righteousness, salvation of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, they have received, you have received faith as precious as ours. Oh, that's loaded, my friend. That word received, it means handed down. It means transmitted. Literally, it means received by lots. You have received it. In other words, what Peter is driving at is that what you receive, which is faith, that faith did not originate with you that faith did not originate in you it was deposited into you as a gift you received it you received a, you receive a gift right and so you've received this gift of faith and this gift has been transmitted it's been handed down it's as if God gave it to you by the casting of lots by his own divine favor and principle and so God did this so that you received this I firmly believe I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I've, I've sung that since I was a boy. And I do believe I have decided to follow Jesus. But you know what happened before I decided to follow Jesus? Jesus decided to call me to follow him. And so I responded willfully to what God did before the very foundation of the world. So I Receive the faith that God gave me. It's a precious gift from God. What Peter is saying to the church, to the believers, you've received this faith and it is as precious as ours, as precious as mine. Peter says, I'm, I'm the slave, I'm the apostle. It's as precious as ours. That word precious, that's a good word. It's a nice translation. But maybe a better understanding is equal standing. This word precious means equal standing so that all believers, all places, all classes, all ethnic backgrounds, all share the same blessing. You have the same salvation that Peter had. We have the same salvation that our brothers in Africa have. We have the same salvation as our sisters in China have. We have the same salvation that was given to David. We have the same salvation that was given to Moses. The same salvation that, that was possessed by Paul. We have the same salvation. Why? Because the source and the giver of that is God. And God gave it to you. So here he's identifying this letter goes to the redeemed. It goes to the church, those who have received faith. This faith that is of equal standing of anything that I've ever received from God. That should make the church feel pretty good, right? We get this letter from the great apostle and he's saying his faith is like our faith. 
What he received, we received. So grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's a direct quote from what he said in the first letter. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then he qualifies it even further. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I think there he has the two, uh, two persons of the Trinity identified. God the Father and Jesus uh, God, the God-man. But this grace and peace that's multiplied unto you comes through what? Knowledge of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. So in other words, Peter is saying that, listen, I want you to know Christ personally. That's what he's saying. I want you to know Christ, not just know about him, but I want you to know him personally, relationally, intellectually. I want you to know him because it's through that knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ that you have a faith that's been deposited in your spirit. It's through that explicit faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we say that it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that enables anybody to be saved. There are not multiple paths to God. There's only one avenue, one road, one way. Peter is echoing what Jesus uh, said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So verses 3 and 4. His divine power. Whose divine power? Probably Christ. That's the antecedent of his. So his divine power, probably Jesus our Lord, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge in him. So in other words, in Jesus Christ, you have everything needed for life and godliness. That word life is zoe, eternal life is what it means. Abundant life. In Jesus, you have everything that you need for life. And in Jesus, you have everything you need for godliness. What did I say I want for you? I want you to know Christ personally and to live like Christ passionately. And here Peter says, if you're in Christ, you've got everything that you need. He is enough. You don't need Christ plus something. You don't need Christ multiplied with something. You don't need Christ uh, with something added on to it. You just need Christ. If you have Jesus, you have enough. In him, you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. And this Jesus has called you. For his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He called us, and his call is effective. When God said, let there be light, light came running. There was no debate. There was no discussion. There was no denial. Light had no possibility of saying, I I really don't want to. I'd really rather not. I'm not quite feeling like it today. No, God said, let there be light, and light came running. There, there, was, there was, light was called by the creator, and light had to respond. In the same way, God's call is effective upon his people. That when God called you, oh my goodness, it was so overwhelming that, that yes, you made a voluntary, a willful decision, but oh boy, it was God that was all over you. Can I get a witness? A couple of us, okay, that's pretty good. I mean, God was all over us, and his call was effective. Because when God called you, did he give you salvation? Absolutely. He gave it to you completely and effectively, right? 
He didn't shortchange you a bit. He gave you the fullness of his salvation. His call is effective. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He called you effectively to come out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if he called you into marvelous light, does he ever want you to retreat into darkness? Heavens, no. He called you. His call is effective. And so he effectively and efficiently has called you out of darkness. Don't retreat back into it. That's what Peter's going to drive at. You are called to live a virtuous life because this God who has called you is effective in his call. And he does not want you to retreat into darkness. You've been called to dance in the light. But we're Baptists. We can't dance. Yes, you can. We are called to dance in the marvelous light of the Lord because he called us out of darkness into light. So his light is effective. His, or his call is effective. His call is also transformational. Verse 4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Like the promise that I'll return, Jesus declares. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. That's the divine dance. You're able to participate in the divine nature, the divine dance of God. It's not that you become God, but you are to become godly, right? You don't become a little god or a little goddess. But if you're in Christ, you are supposed to become godly. Because his call is effective and his call is transformational. We say frequently, I may not be all that I'm supposed to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Isn't that the testimony that his call is effective and his call is transformational? It's not that we are perfect, but we have been forgiven. We have been called out of darkness into light. His call is transformational. So we participate in a divine nature. He has a moral influence over our life. It's not that we become God, but we sure do become godly. So in light of that, verses 5 to 7, as Christ's followers, we live a virtuous life. He puts together eight virtues. He strings them together in a beautiful pearl necklace. Faith, you've got faith, so you add to that faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, you string together self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly love or brotherly kindness, which is the Greek word phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, and to phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, you string together love, which in that case is agape. It's unconditional love. So you string together this virtuous life. I don't think he's being exhaustive in this list. I don't think he's saying these are the only the eight traits that you're supposed to have. No, I don't think it's exhaustive. I just think he's saying that in light of the effective transformational call of God upon your life, this is how you're supposed to live. These are the words that should describe your actions. Let me make three observations from this list of eight virtues. Number one, I do think it's, um, he's intentional that it begins with faith and it ends with love. I think he does that on purpose. Because everything in the Christian life begins with faith. Everything is built on faith. 
And the goal of our faith, the climactic goal of our faith is always demonstrating agape love to other people. That's really hard to do. But that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to demonstrate agape love to people who don't deserve it. Because, my friend, you didn't deserve his agape love toward you. So because of what Christ has demonstrated to us, through us, and for us, we are to demonstrate to others. So everything in the Christian life begins with faith, and the ultimate climax is demonstrating real, genuine, no-strings-attached, unconditional, unending love towards others. I'll make a second observation. I think that right smack dab in the middle, he intentionally put self-control. Because I think self-control kind of uh, harnesses the Christian life. Self-control is central to this life that God has called us to. The godly life is the self-controlled life of restraint. You show me somebody who is restrained, controlled. They know who they are. They know how they're supposed to live and act. They're not impulsive with their desires, their passions, their pleasures. You show me somebody that's controlled and harnessed by the Spirit. I'll show you somebody who really has been called by God. I don't need a show of hands and I don't need testimony. But has there ever been a time when you lived out of control? Yeah, all of us. There are times when we live out of control. Out of control emotionally, out of control verbally, out of control mentally, out of control by our actions, out of control sinfully. There are times when we live out of control, but God has called you. His call is effective and it's transformational. So when God calls you, he demonstrates virtues in your life from your life. And at the heart of that is self-control. I don't know if all eight of these build on each other. uh, Because the case could be made, for example, that it says that on faith you build goodness. And then eventually you build it to knowledge. And somebody may try to make the argument, well, you really can't be good until you have knowledge you got to know what's good in order to be good, right? So I get it. I don't know that Peter is building each one. My third observation is this list is simultaneous, not sequential. Peter is not saying, listen, you've got to master faith. And then once you master faith, then you move on to goodness. And once you're good all the time, then um, I want you to strive for knowledge, And then once you know everything, okay, once you know everything you need to know, then you can demonstrate self-control. I don't know about you, I'd be stuck back on goodness, right? I mean, because I'm not good all the time. But I think this list is communicating to us, this is how we're supposed to live. And this, this is a simultaneous description of our life, not a sequential. In the same way that I make the argument that the Great Commission is simultaneous and not sequential. When Jesus said, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, I do not think that is sequential. I don't think Jesus was saying, okay, church, go into your Jerusalem, and then once you do that successfully, then and only then can you move on to Judea, and then after you've conquered that, then you can move on to Samaria, and then once you've tackled your Samaria, then you can go to the end of the world. No, Jesus is telling us as a church, we need to be involved simultaneously in all four areas.
I think in the same way, Peter's doing the same thing. That we need to simultaneously demonstrate these things of knowledge and goodness and self-control and, and, and brotherly love and ultimately agape love. And all of it is rooted and grounded in faith. Now don't misunderstand Peter. Peter is not giving us a work salvation. But he is giving us a salvation that works. It's not that we are saved by work, but we sure are saved to do good works. Peter and Paul would agree completely on this. Also, our good friend Martin Luther would agree. For Luther said, they shall prove their faith by their good works. Peter's going to speak about election. And you and I should never bow up to election. We should not resist it. It is a biblical doctrine, one that we embrace wholeheartedly. Election is proven by faith and fruit. Your election The fact that God chose you before the very foundation of the world is proven and demonstrated by your faith and by your fruit. You know why I think many people uh, resist election? Because they think that somewhere along the way at the end of the day, somebody who has no faith and no fruit is somehow going to get in God's kingdom. No, that's nowhere taught in the Bible at all. Because the Bible is very consistent. Yes, you have been chosen. You have been elected from the very foundation of the world. And what is the evidence of that election? Your faith and your fruit. There's nobody who doesn't have faith and fruit that's going to get into God's kingdom. And only the people that demonstrate genuine faith and fruit are really the elect who are saved, the redeemed, and they're going to get into God's kingdom. Does that make sense? So there's no reason for us to resist or bow up or push away from this biblical doctrine of election. Peter doesn't. We shouldn't either. So in verses 8 and 9, he says, you possess these qualities in increasing measure. Increasing measure means it keeps on growing. It's kind of like when you exercise, when you work out. When you work out your muscle, your muscle grows, it gets bigger and it gets stronger. Some of y'all may be thinking, it's been a long time since I worked out. (laughs) may be true. But spiritually speaking, we should always be exercising these virtues. When we exercise these virtues, what happens to our faith, our love, our self-control? It gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper and wider and wider. If you do not exercise these virtues, what will happen? They get anemic. They get weak. They get flabby, right? Grandma's flabby arms. That's what happens, okay? Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to demonstrate it, but they get flabby, okay? And nobody wants to be spiritually flabby. So Peter is saying, you work out these virtues and they ever increase. They ever grow. Because just like muscles have to be worked out, so do these virtues. These virtues keep you, verses 8 and 9, keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. The word ineffective means an idle worker in the marketplace. It's somebody who just goes to the marketplace. They're looking for a job, but they're not really looking for a job. They're just kind of kicking the dirt, kicking the sand, walking around. Uh, They're just idle, not doing anything. Peter says they're ineffective and unproductive, which means lacking in fruitfulness. They're unproductive. Once again, how is your election made evidence? By your faith, by your fruit. By your faith, by your fruit. By your faith, and by your fruit. 
You demonstrate faith and fruitfulness. It demonstrates your sure election. And this faith that is ever-growing. If anyone doesn't have these virtuous traits, then that person, Peter says, is nearsighted and blind. Nearsighted means short-sighted. They're, they're not thinking in the long term. They're only thinking for the immediate. Do you know anybody like that? You know anybody who just reacts and acts for the immediate impulse of the moment? Do you know anybody like that? Instead of looking down the road and seeing the ramifications of these actions or seeing the consequences that will come from these actions, Peter says anybody who doesn't have these eight virtues, doesn't demonstrate these things and exercise these things and have them in increasing measure, that person is nearsighted, short-sighted, and blind, which is the picture of somebody walking around with his eyes closed. Blind. Blind to what? He has forgotten his sin that's been forgiven by Christ. And he's forgotten that Christ is surely to come. There are some people, spiritually speaking, they're walking around blind. They're walking around with their eyes closed. They're not realizing all their sin has been forgiven. And they're not recognizing that Christ is coming back. Those who treasure being forgiven live in a way that pleases God. Once again, what do I want for you? I want you to know Christ personally and live like Christ passionately. And every person who treasures being forgiven, is that you? I mean, you treasure the fact that you're forgiven of sin. Anybody who treasures the forgiveness of sin wants to live in a way that pleases God. There is no moral relaxation. Instead, there's intentional Christ-like action. So, so this is not, um, we sin so that more grace may abound. No, no. If we realize how Jesus has forgiven us of sin, that motivates us not for moral relaxation and just kind of sitting on your laurels, but instead it motivates you to be intentional in your Christ-like action. i got to finish. Verses 10 and 11. So be eager to make your calling and election sure. Be eager. Last week I heard an analogy that if we are in the last days, we need to live life as if we are executing a two-minute drill. For any of you familiar with sports, whether it's football um, or basketball, um, anything that has a clock, um, the last two minutes can be the most crucial two minutes. And the last two-minute drill, you've got to be precise and urgent. You can't have any lackadaisical plays. You got to be precise and you got to be urgent. And if it's true that we're in the last days and if it's true that God is executing his two minute drill, you and I have to be eager to live for him, which requires precision in our life and accuracy in how we live. We've got to be precise, we've got to be, we've got to be eager, uh, we've got to have a sense of urgency. The analogy, the person uh, gave a great word of encouragement that if this is the end of times and if, this, if these are the last days and if we are in the two-minute drill, uh, count it pure joy that God has not sent you to the showers yet. He sent a lot of people to the showers already. And he's got some people on his team that are on the bench. But you're in the game. Uh, Kevin, only the stars are in the game at the very end, right? 
I mean, only the best players are in the game at the very end. And if it's the case that we are in the last days and we're executing a two-minute drill and we do it with precision and urgency, God has seen fit to keep you in the game in the last two minutes. He wants you to be in the game. See, he hasn't sent you to the showers. He hasn't benched you yet. He's saying, you're in the front line. You're on the game. You've got a job to do. Do your job. Uh, own your yard. And it just, just be there and do what you're supposed to do. Be eager to make your calling and election sure. You do that and you'll never fall. Does that mean we're never gonna make a mistake? No, it means that we will not falter as we enter the kingdom of God. Because what's the next line say? You'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me summarize it this way. God's people must live a godly way in order to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So I'll end the way I began. What do I want for you? I want you to know Christ personally and to live like Christ passionately. God be praised.